So welcome back to Stand Up Citizen. Thanks for listening. Uh, in a group discussion recently, I heard several cries of down with the Electoral College. Uh, I wonder, based on their political affiliation, if they would complain so loudly if the 2016 election had turned out differently. So let's consult the design of our founders, since that is our project in Stand Up Citizen, the background and their presentation to the country of the rationale for selecting a president by way of the Electoral College. Understanding their arguments is what we at least owe to them. Well, first, it was believed that electing a president by the people directly without the intermediate step of the electors might be very risky. In Greece and Rome, there were democracies in both places, or republics if they weren't democracies, which at times witnessed the appeal of one man or one issue come along and sweep away the judgment of the people and play on the passions of the moment. And in the aftermath, what did they find but a ruined and defunct republic and a tyranny in its place? Recall that the founders read history for instruction, something we don't do enough of today. Hamilton and the other founders did not trust the population to make the right choice. The founders also believed that the Electoral College, none of whom, as you'll see, could be people currently in office, had the advantage of being a group that met only once and thus could not be manipulated over time by foreign governments or factions or other groups. Hamilton and the other founders were influenced by this sentiment greatly, and they believed that the electors would be able to ensure that only a qualified person became president. Such men of distinction, as they put it, would be most capable of deciding which presidential candidate had the best qualifications for office. They thought that the Electoral College would act as a check on the popular vote when the voters might in fact be duped. Of course, there were no political parties at the time of the founding, and they have certainly influenced how the Electoral College works. Remember that George Washington warned, quote, control party spirit, the bane of Republican government. So let's talk about separation of powers, checks and balances for some context and some background for our founders' views and how they were formed. The founders spoke and wrote often about the need for checks and balances. The framers of the Constitution, particularly Publius, who, as you recall, were the writings by Hamilton, Madison, and John Jay, wanted some, uh, some overlap in the powers among the branches because they were concerned that the three branches would have to work together, ideally. Those who wrote in opposition to the Constitution wanted complete separation of branches, powers, and functions. Some worried that having the branches overlap 
meant more chance for collusion. It's a favorite word today in the news. Hamilton and Madison argued in opposition that overlap would allow for a better check by one branch on a grab for power by another. They realized that sometimes one branch would try and assert its authority over another and wanted a structural method to make them cooperate. So they made them overlap in many respects. For example, the Constitution requires that the Senate must approve a federal court nominee by the president. The president can veto a law passed by Congress, which Congress can then override. The Supreme Court can rule a law passed by Congress is unconstitutional and therefore invalid. These are examples of overlaps uh, among the branches uh, which the members of the uh, founding group that supported the Constitution believed would create a better check and balance in the government. So the president is commander-in-chief of the armed forces when called into the actual service of the U.S. That's how the Constitution reads. But the Congress was given the power of calling the armed forces into service by declaring war and taking other sorts of military action. That was reinforced by the War Powers Act of 1973 by necessity. So they also worried that two branches might combine and try and dominate a third branch. In an effort to avoid damaging collusion, they set up different terms of office and different ways that each constitutional officer was to achieve federal office. So for example, the House is elected directly by the people for two-year terms thus the 116th Congress, which is our current Congress. Senators were to be elected for a six-year term, originally by state legislatures, which was changed by the 17th Amendment, and were staggered so that not all are elected in the same election cycle. Today that means 33 or 34 of the senators are up for re-election every two years. Judges nominated but not appointed by the president with the approval of the Senate and they're appointed and uh, approved for life. President, of course, is chosen for four years by the Electoral College electors who are selected by the people of each state. Their design is part of a thread that runs throughout the Constitution that members of the three branches should always be in some kind of healthy competition and that each should check and balance the others. It may sound like I'm emphasizing that term check and balance too much, but John Adams did the very same thing, so I'll be in good company. Recall that the framers' concern about faction and the effort to use competition between factions to impede dominance by one faction is something that we have discussed. Quote, there is no prior existence anywhere, even in the ancient constitutions of the Greeks and the Romans, which recognized that conflict was normal to a political system and needed to be organized and channeled. That's from a speech by Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan. 
So let's consult Alexander Hamilton's essay on the Electoral College, Federalist Paper 68, to understand its design rationale and then compare how we have strayed, if at all, from the design and with what effect. Remember, that is our Stand Up Citizen project. Consult the design and the framers and determine where there is operator error, if any. So I'm going to be quoting from Federalist 68, and I'll try and paraphrase some of the 18th century language. The mode of appointment of the chief magistrate, their term for president, is almost the only part of the system which has escaped without severe censure or the slightest mark of approbation, that is criticism, from its opponents. In other words, no opposition from the anti-federalists, which is notable since there was opposition and very well-argued opposition to most important sections of the Constitution. The sense of the people should operate in the choice of the person to whom so important a trust was to be confided. This end was answered by committing the choice not to any pre-established body, but to men chosen by the people for this special purpose and this, this particular time. In other words, the sense of the people will be preserved by using a special group chosen by the people just for this purpose, and not to a court or a Congress or Senate or other government group that is in place. So no sitting political officials would be in this special body of citizens. That would make little chance for undue influence or partisanship. Okay, next. The immediate election of the president should be made by men most capable of analyzing the qualities adapted to the station and acting under circumstances favorable to deliberation. A small number of persons selected by their fellow citizens from the general mass would be most likely to possess the information and judgment needed to select a president. In other words, men of judgment should be elected by the people of the state and meet to deliberate within the state. The people of each state would be able to pick a small group of citizens who were known to them to form a group capable of voting on a suitable, qualified person to become president. Okay, back to Federalist 68. An intermediate body of electors will be much less apt to convulse the community with extraordinary or violent movements than the choice of one person. In other words, electors selected by the people to vote for president is better and safer than direct election of the president by the people. The electors chosen in each state are to assemble and vote in the state in which they are chosen. And this detached and divided situation will expose them much less to heats and ferments which might be communicated to the people. In other words, it's better 
this way than if they were all to be convened at one time in one place. There's less chance of undue influence and passions or factions influencing the deliberations and the vote for president. So, next, for those most deadly adversaries of Republican government might naturally have been expected to make their approaches from the desire in foreign powers to gain an improper ascendancy in our councils. In other words, too much influence over people in our government. How could they better gratify this than by raising a creature of their own to the chief magistracy, that is the president of the union? So to restate this, those opposed to a Republican form of government and foreign powers wishing to gain great influence over our government would be less likely to be able to do so with a special group of electors just recently elected who meet in widely dispersed states. Now remember, they had no phones, no electronic means of communication to make collaboration and conspiracy easy. So this whole idea of separate states, meeting in separate states instead of one place in one room makes more sense when we keep that in mind. Okay, back to Federalist 68. The framers have not made the appointment of the president depend on any pre-existing body of men, but they referred it to an immediate act of the people of America. Through the choice of persons for the temporary and only purpose of making the appointment, that is, this election of a president, they have excluded all those who might be suspected of too great a devotion to the president in office. In other words, partisans of an incumbent president. Remember, there are no term limits in the original Constitution. So, the process of election affords a moral certainty that the office of president will never fall to the lot of any man who is not in an eminent degree endowed with the right qualifications. In other words, it guarantees the selection of a qualified person. Uh, those of you who oppose Donald Trump might not be persuaded. But I urge you to consider the original tent intent and design, and not the party-influenced process we employ today. So, does this design make sense? The framers were not exactly clear on whether each person could vote their individual conscience, but I believe that they would find the concept of, quote, faithless electors, unquote, imposed by political party apparatus working within the states, to be contrary to both the letter and spirit of their electoral college design. So what do we do, uh, if anything, if you still believe the electoral college needs reforming and should not be discarded? Here are some suggestions that have been made to reform the electoral college. You can make your own judgment. Careful selection of electors and limited influence by the political parties. Next, consider keeping the names of electors private until after votes are cast. Names of electors are public in many or most states. 
neutralize any structural partisan influence. That can be in many forms. But the main idea is to keep partisanship, including factions from political parties, neutralized or reduced. Next, instruct electors to vote according to the founders' intent and their own judgment. Next, electors should vote by a secret ballot. Next, roll back state laws directing, quote, unquote, vote with the party. And then reform district boundaries to counter the influence of gerrymandering as it affects the electors. Or how about the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact Initiative? I know that's a long title. It would require that delegates of the states must all vote for the candidate who wins the national popular vote. I'm not sure how that helps. How about ranked choice of voting? You can vote for as many candidates as you like and of whatever party, but you rank them by most favorite, second most favorite, and so on. Or should we abolish the Electoral College via constitutional amendment and put all non-judicial officers under the same form of election by the people? So then what about the concern about the monolithic cooperation and reinforcement of the tendency toward faction that the founders worried about? Maybe that's just an old-fashioned idea. Well, as citizens, we have to decide. On the issue of the republic being threatened and the threats of authoritarian behavior and tyranny, here's what the authors of How Democracies Die offered for, as a list. Here's what to watch for. A weak commitment to democratic rules of the game. Not only the rules, but the norms that we have in place. Also, an authoritarian would deny the political opponent's legitimacy and call them things like immoral and unpatriotic. And they would tolerate or encourage violence, especially against groups opposed to them and the press. And there was a readiness or inclination to curtail civil liberties and the media. This is backed up by a considerable amount of research by the authors of How Democracies Die. So remember the founder's concern and the idea of checks and balances. One branch works in lockstep with another such as the judiciary or Congress with the president to dominate the government, what will be the fate of our 230-year-old republic? If you like this podcast, please share it. Comment wherever you can. And thank you very much for listening.